Well, I'm, my name is Ryan Dean, and I know many of you, and it is an incredible joy, an incredible honor to be invited uh, to celebrate this milestone with you as a church, and so thanks, Pastor L, and for the session, and for all who have invited me. Uh, this place is, uh, hey, Julie, there's almost no place that I love more than this place right here on the earth, and so for us, this is a, um, this is a, a great moment, so thanks for having us, and um, my prayer is that God would use his word today like he does, man. He just, he's good to change us and transform us in ways that we don't even expect, uh, the ways we don't even think we need um, by his word uh, as we read and preach it. So praying for that today. Let me uh, read. I'm going to preach, uh, it's probably a pretty familiar passage, Matthew 22. It's uh, the first and greatest, first and second great commandments. And so if you'll turn there, direct your scrolling to uh, Matthew chapter 22, I'm going to read verses 34 through 40, and then I will, I will pray for us and pray for our time together. So hear now God's word. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's go now to God together and ask him to bless this time. Father, uh, I'm grateful to be uh, your servant in this place today. I'm grateful to, uh, to be able to hopefully explain and expound your word. Uh, I, I know I'm not, I know better than ever how, how I'm not equal to such a call, uh, not worthy uh, to be your servant. And yet, thank you for giving me this passion. Thank you for, uh, for enabling me to be able to, to share. I ask that your word would do uh, wonders among us today, that uh, we would say, leave this place saying the Lord has done great things, that your name would be known and remembered and loved, not the name of any human being or, or the memory of any man. So please, Lord, uh, by your spirit, uh, speak to us, change us, uh, help us, for we are so often of little faith. Um, thank you for this church. Thank you for what it's meant in my life, uh, the inexpressible thing it's meant in my life. Thank you for how you continue to work in it how you continue to cause it to be a place where Jesus is lifted up and known. So thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. It was four years ago, last Thanksgiving, that my family and I left here after seven years ministering in this place uh, to go to what, what, what in many ways is sort of an odd fit, uh, if you're just looking at it from the outside. It is Clarksdale, Mississippi, it's in, the middle, it's in the Mississippi Delta. It is a, a small town of 15,000 people, an hour and a half south of Memphis, just along the, the river, really, or just right on the river. It's the middle of nowhere, is what it is. And uh, it's a farming community. It's a, it's a rural country place. And I'll be honest with you, in many ways, it's a really tough place to live. Uh, like so much of small-town America, it's, over the last two decades, been a place of declining population. I think the new census is going to have us losing two or 3,000 people over the last 10 years. 
Uh, it is a place that is economically distressed. You can see it everywhere. Uh, you, you, it, it's on, on the face of the town. Uh, it is a place of 40% poverty, uh, where 40% of the population lives below the poverty level. So many broken systems and structures and governments and, uh, you know, there, there's good things too, of course. Um, it's, it's a deeply racially divided place, uh, sort of a cold war racially, you know, where everybody just kind of leaves each other alone and you kind of exist in these little bubbles. Uh, a year after we went there, the only grocery store left, I know, Kroger. So now uh, Walmart is our all in all for all things. Um, so if you feel bad about your life right now, now you can feel bad about mine a little bit. But it's not bad. It's awesome. It's wonderful. Um, it, it was an odd fit because, you know, it's not, you know, necessarily the place you're like, you know, you set out on your map of life and be like, you know, I really want to end up, you know, that place. Uh, but what drew us there is not the amenities and the towns. What drew us there was this weird church there. It is the first Presbyterian, the first Presbyterian Church of Clarksdale, Mississippi, established 1891. Sounds thrilling, doesn't it? Sounds like a dynamic call, doesn't it? Well, in many ways, it actually is. It's an old, old church that kind of has a younger spirit about it. Uh, before me, the pastor before me, and the uh, leaders of the church before I came, they, they did something that old churches very rarely do, is that they said, holy cow, the world is changing. We can't act like it's not. And so this old first church began saying, what would it look like for us to change? What would it look like for us to, like, to be a church that exists now in this town as it is, not as we once remember it to be? And so they've undertaken changes. This is even before I was called there, changes to uh, seeking to cross the racial divide. Of course, this is a church that's existed on the white side of town for for its whole life, and, and now it's begun to take these steps to say, what would it look like for us to actually be a neighbor to the black community, to, to be able to feasibly see folks build relationships across those divides. It's a place uh, that has sought to make worship more inviting and lively. Uh, it's a place that reaches, has learned to reach out to its neighbors and not just exist in its own bubble, uh, to connect with uh, even people who are not necessarily part of its, its core group. You know, this is like there's a downtown sort of artist thing going on there, and so what would it look like to, like, to be a part of that? It's this vision that compelled us to leave uh, this place and to go to the middle of nowhere to work at a church that is 130 years old. Our church is really on the opposite end of the spectrum as Redeemer Church. We're really old, and what we're like, what our church is like, it's like an old lady who has had her whole life and is entering into retirement, and she's like, listen, I could just sit around and die, and I could just complain about the world and how things aren't the way they used to be, but I'm going like, to engage. It's, that's what it is. I'm, I'm, I'm tending an old lady in retirement. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm walking with her, and what I've learned is that she's still old, okay? And along with oldness, you know, it's, it, it's got many blessings, but there are also limits and challenges to that, and I've learned that. But it is a church that is seeking to thrive into the future and to be a church for now. That's why I'm there. Opposite end is Redeemer. Redeemer's like this beautiful young lady, you know what I mean? Like this, this woman who has uh, entered into adulthood. It was 16 years ago that she was born onto this earth in this place. And what a beautiful thing it has been watching her grow up. My family, we came, we moved here from Atlanta in 2009 and uh, stayed here until 2016. So, so looking back on it, I like to think that we kind of lived through the teenage years 
of Redeemer, uh, with all the uh, lively growth, but also a lot of the awkwardness, too, of teenage years. Uh, when we were here, and those of you who were here during that time, you can recall just the excitement. I mean, the people were coming to know the Lord. Um, this place was exploding. Uh, the, the Word of God was so powerful among us. Worship was this experience of like really drawing near to God in a way that like I look at this place and say the, the best times of worship I've had in my life have been in this room. It was a time where every week as a staff we would ask ourselves what is going to happen next. I mean we were all kind of holding on for dear life because it was so exciting but it was also awkward and those of us in leadership and the session knows it is like we were kind of winging it honestly like we did not know we were not built for a, a membership class of 100 people like we did not have the structures and so we were like a teenager you know that is constantly outgrowing its pants and is like is looking awkward and weird and and really what part of my call and the call of us who were serving here was to like to to build a structure to to help this thing sort of be perpetual and to see it be established and to not be winging it forever. That's kind of what, what we were doing. Seeing from afar this church, I'm filled with such joy because I do feel like in some ways like she's grown up. She's a big girl now. She's left the nest and is this beautiful, healthy, stabilized relatively speaking, structured thing. And, and that, I mean, that is to the praise of Pastor L and it's to the, to the merit of the session and all of those, the staff, y'all have done an incredible job. And from afar, I just look and I just, I'm filled with such joy for what this church has become, for how it's a beautiful young woman. And yet, like all the stages of life, being this healthy, beautiful young woman, it comes with challenges. And that's kind of what I want to talk to you about today, is the challenges of growing up and being an established institution, being a church that works well and has its ways and has its customs and has its traditions and has its staff and structure. The challenge, I'm going to tell you, is this, because I know it from the other side of the spectrum, is that you lose first things. The challenge for you as a church is that you thrive as an institution, but on the inside, your heart begins to erode. That you become so settled and so comfortable and so about your own thing that you lose the love and the zeal that characterized your youth. That aliveness that we all felt. It gets harder as you get older. And that's true for a church, and that's true for us as people. And that's why I chose this really familiar passage for you today. Is It's simple. This is not going to be an exposition that's going to rock your face off and, and make you think, I never knew that. Wow. Uh, this is going to be something, you know, that you're going to hopefully just easily assess. Yet I chose this because I, my prayer for this church that I love is that it would remember first things, that it would be renewed in first things, um, that as our Lord calls this church, you would be defined by two things in your life ahead. And these are the two points of my sermon, if you're taking notes. I like to be really, two points. I went to seminary. Number one, uh, love God with your whole self and love your neighbor as yourself. That's number two. Rocket science, I know. 
I'm here to share it with you. Uh, this is, these are the first things. This is the heartbeat of our Christianity. As individuals, but also as churches, if we lose these things, you may have a big, beautiful church. You may continue to build your structures. You may see great growth, but you're dead. How many dead churches are there in this community that once were alive? That happened because they forgot first things. That happened because the, the form took precedence over the heart. May it not be for this church. So our context of our passage, you know, we're in, uh, this is Matthew 22, and really it's like Jesus's established, Jesus's confrontation with the Jewish establishment. You can think of the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees as like the grumpy old lady, uh, just like mean and nasty, and, and she once was, you know, had it going on, but now she's just mean. Uh, in the passage before this, he addresses the Sadducees, this group that was, was, was obsessed with their own power. They were this wealthy, established Jewish sect, this part of Judaism. And so uh, he asked this question that's meant to kind of trick Jesus and meant to kind of make him look like a fool. Jesus answers, and he's, you know, he makes them look like he totally decimates them. And he shows them that even though they think so much of themselves, and even though they're, they're so zealous to protect their power and position, that they have forgotten the most basic tenets of their faith, that they do not live out the truth that they claim to profess. He's going to do that same thing here with the Pharisees. You know the Pharisees, your old friends. Never really, you know, given a lot of positive airtime in the Bible, the Pharisees are. Uh, but what, what we miss in that is that it, Pharisees were, a, that was a good thing if, in first century Judaism. It was like, if you, you would want your son to grow up to be a Pharisee because that meant that they were like serious about their faith, that they, 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 they you know, they had this hunger for, the, for what seemed like the word and they wanted to follow the word and study it very carefully. The problem is that it wasn't just the word, it was also all these traditions, all these traditions of the rabbis that they, they tried to, to follow to the nth degree. And what has happened with these Pharisees, and we'll see in this, in this encounter, is that they have this rigor of outward conformity, but really they're just like the Sadducees. They've utterly missed the point of their faith. Isn't that possible? that you're disciplined and that you're hardcore and that you're focused and that you're, 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 you're trying to dot your I's and cross your T's, dot your I's. Yeah, okay. You know when you're about to use a metaphor and you're like, did I do that right? Uh, to, to dot your T's and cross your I's. But they've lost their heart. Look down at verse 34. Pharisees heard. He had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together. They are like, like the Sadducees in that they see Jesus as a threat to their traditions and their institutions and their scheming together against God himself to entrap him, their own God. So blind are they to their faith that they are, they are trying to entrap God in their arguments. He asks one of these lawyers, one of these scribes, one of these great men, leaders, a seminary president, he asks a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? This was an oft-debated question in Judaism, and uh, it was sort of one of those questions that just ended up, everybody took sides and you fought, you fought about it. You know, oh, I think this is the best one. I think this is the best one. Um, and so what these Pharisees are trying to do, they're trying to embroil Jesus in their controversy. They're trying to draw him into the weeds of their nonsense. 
Jesus answers deftly, and he points them to first things. First of all, what matters, number one, is to love God with your whole self. He said to him, verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Pastor L read the passage from the Old Testament, so you know that this is not new information. This is not a new law that Jesus teaches. This was rooted in the very heart of the Old Testament and of of what Moses said. Deuteronomy 6 is right after Deuteronomy 5. You know what Deuteronomy 5 is? The Ten Commandments. And so, so in the faith, at the heart of the faith, this is the Shema. Did you realize this? This is every day Jews would pray the prayer. Um, uh, how'd it go? Let me find it. Sorry. Pray the prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And so the point is that, that this is not like Jesus is bringing up. You know, it's not really about just following the commandments. It's about love that motivates that. This has been in their text. This has been a part of their tradition And yet, conveniently, they've forgotten that God really cares about love. And that the commandments actually are in service to, or or, or, or object lessons, a way to live out love. Think about that, y'all. The first thing that God seeks from human beings is not that they fear him. And it's not that they obey him. The first thing that God seeks from human beings is he wants you to love him. The commentator Dan Doriani says it this way, the central theme of the drama of scripture is this, and it's simple. God loves us and we love him in return. It is reciprocated love that is at the center of the story of Scripture, both in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant. It's what God is, is, is after, and it's, it's who God is. Think about it in the Old Covenant and with Israel, that, that the foundation of their identity as a people was not what they had done for God. The foundation of their identity as a people was this knowledge that God has first loved us. It was this knowledge that they rehearsed day in and day out that he chose our forefathers when they were nothing and no one, that he he chose to rescue us from slavery, that he chose to deliver us out of of Egypt and take us into the land he provided for us there. He is the one who who cared for us there. He is the one who, who brought us into this land that they were enjoying, a land flowing with milk and honey. It was, it was God who had given them the promises that, that all the nations were going to be blessed in them. It was God who walked with them in their sorrows and in their griefs. It was God who was their ever-present help. And the point of all that was not so that they would just do their duty. The point and why they rehearsed it and why they were so deeply grounded in being the beloved people of God is that God wanted them to love him. God wanted a people who would adore him and who would have affection for him and and for whom it would not be enough just to follow his rules and to keep him happy. He wanted a people who would be passionate for him. And, And all of this obedience, all of the law, if it was to be pleasing to God, was to be an outworking of a passion that his people were to have for him, like a lover has for the one that he loves. 
It's to be expressed in obedience. Now in the new covenant, the same is true. The foundation of our identity, people of Christ, is not about how you have loved God. It's about how you are. when you were yet a sinner, Christ loved you and died for you. And that's why we rehearse and worship over and over again the gospel, because we want to be reminded of, of, of the fact that to understand ourselves, we have to understand that I am a hotly pursued man. You are a hotly pursued woman. You are a hotly pursued child. The God has loved you before the foundation of the earth. He's chosen you to be his. He's chosen to apply Christ to you. He has acted beautifully to show you and prove his love. He sent his own son to bear your sin and to, 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 to take your victory out of death in the grave. He is your advocate. He walks with you. He has inexhaustible mercy for you that even though you fail over and over again, he just loves to show you mercy. This is who your God is. You see, all the commands in the New Testament, we shouldn't be ashamed of those commands that say, do this, don't do this, because we got to understand that God's not just after you not doing and doing. God is really after winning you and helping you understand, when you love me, this is how you'll act. He has always been about love, because God is a lover. And lovers don't want mere compliance, Valentine's Day. I say this as one who loves a woman deeply. And particularly in the beginning of our love, so long ago. I wanted to show my love for her. It was love in the beginning of romance that compels your good behavior, doesn't it? Y'all remember this, those of you who are in love? When I first met Leslie Dunn, I was a child, pretty much. Not really, you know, that's figurative. She, if she told me to jump, I'd say, how high? If she... We, we, we went to school two hours apart. She said, hey, I, I might want to see you tonight. I'm already in the car. <laughs> My greatest joy in life was to be and to do what she wanted me to be and do. Because I loved her. Because she was all I could think about. Because I, I was filled with affection for this woman. Now, we've been 18 years now, married this summer. We got three kids. We've been through good and bad times. We've stabilized, right? I mean... It's good. A lot of good things, but the temptation for us, 20 years in, is that we lose that love, that, that the habit. We're good at the habit of not making each other angry. We're good at the habit of not just defying each other and making our lives miserable. We've learned to coexist in a happy way. It's easy for that to become our marriage. The older we get, I can tell you this, men. My wife is not interested in mere compliance. She wants to know I, I feel for her. She wants to know that I delight in her. She wants to know that, man, the way that I felt about her when I was a young man, I still feel that way, and it's even deeper. It's even more passionate that, that lovers demand love in return, affection. And so it is with our God. See, the first thing that he wants is, is for you to love him. As you get older in your faith, 
it gets a little harder. You remember the zeal you felt when you first came to know the Lord, when Jesus became real to you? People didn't have to, like, push you to do stuff for him. There's this, like, flow of joy that your whole Christian life. Now, you get a little older, and it gets a little more mundane. Like, every day is not camp. So there is ever a need for those of us who have walked with the Lord for a long time to, to just like in our marriages, to stir up the passion that we once knew. I think the same is true for you all as a church. As you get older, there's going to be a greater need to intentionally stir up the zeal of your youth, lest Jesus rebuke you in the very way that he rebuked the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, where he said this to them, I know you're enduring patiently. You guys are doing great. Y'all doing a great job. You're doing great things. You're enduring patiently. You're bearing up under persecution. You're not growing weary. Yeah, you're following. Yeah, orthodoxy, check. But I have this against you. You've abandoned your love for me. I pray that that would not be said of this church. You guys are, man, y'all are a machine here. You're scanning heads when people come in. I had to get a ticket to be here today. But what happened to your heart for me? How? What does it look like to, to, as a church to love God with your whole self? Here's a couple of suggestions. Number one, by keeping the gospel center. As you grow as a church, there's going to be more and more agendas that are going to compete for airspace. And all of us who are pastors this year know this. Various political visions, uh, other institutions, this is true for you as a big, strong, important church, movements, and there's going to be this pressure on you to jump on the bandwagons of whatever's happening right now in the bigger world. And, And those things aren't all bad at all. But there's going to be a temptation to invest the church's focus and energy to something less than the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many good and worthy causes in this world, but there is nothing powerful like the gospel. You know what can transform people's hearts? Nothing but the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen again. And so it is that work and that proclamation in your life and in your living and in your discipleship and in your evangelism and all of it, it is to penetrate every part of who you are as a church. And and don't be pushed off by the pressures and by the, the different ideas about who's good and who's not good and who's on the right side and who's on the wrong side. There's this satanic power at work to divide this church just like it's at work to divide my church. And Satan doesn't care what the issue is. He'll use whatever he's got to divide a church. And the only way that you can continue to be this bright light for the gospel is if you say, we're going to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. We're going to keep our eyes focused on how we're united. We're going to keep our eyes on the things that matter most, which is that we have been loved by God And no matter how we differ and no matter how we disagree, we are brothers and we are sisters that God has chosen his friends. Only the message of grace can can capture hearts. 
not this great thing we're doing. Come see it. Second thing is keeping worship vital. It's how you love God. If church is not, first of all, about political or social action or satisfying the felt needs of Christian consumers, but if church is about a communion of people in love with God who have been loved with God, corporate worship is going to be central. And the reason that is, is because what, what you do here every Sunday is like a family meal, a weekly family meal, and Jesus is the head of the table. What you do here every week is not just another program of the church. Well, I, you know, I'm not going to make it to worship. I'm going to go to something else this week. It is the place of intimacy. It is the, this is the pillow talk of your covenant with God. The place where that intimate language is shared of, of love and of care and, and God speaks to you and, and you speak to God and it is this celebration of your covenant week in and week out. So often what I've seen in churches that lose their way is that worship becomes another thing on the schedule. That what really church is is our hanging out. This looks like continuing to... to to plan worship carefully, to approach it with care and prayer, to understand that it is the very heartbeat of a church. So love God with your whole self. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. He goes on, Jesus says, a second is like it. That is, it's an extension of it. It's an expression of love for God is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Uh, this too, as Pastor L read, this is in the, the Old Testament. It's in the Torah. Leviticus 19.18. And, and the point is he's distilling the essence of commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. What, is, what are those commandments really about? You know, don't kill, steal, commit adultery, covet, um, whatever else there are that I can't remember right now. I need Zach to sing me the song. Um, <laughs> that the essence of those things is just love, loving your neighbor. That, that that's what God is after in your relationships with other people and all the ethical commands, are they're fulfilled if you love your neighbor. You love your neighbor as yourself. If the measure of the first kind of love we have is with our whole selves, the second is as yourself. And that's an important analogy. He's not thinking about uh, path, pathological narcissism or anything, like obsession with yourself. He's talking about how we all have a natural concern for our welfare. If our bodies are hungry, we're, we're singularly focused on getting them fed. If our bodies are injured, we're singularly focused on tending to them. If we are deeply unhappy, we are singularly focused on becoming happy. And those are normal part of being a human being. He's saying, hey, I'm not saying deny those things. I'm not, just, I'm not saying deny your care for yourself. Just make that circle larger. Extend it so that the care that you give to yourself is the same that you give to your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Well, Jesus had a little conversation about that. The Good Samaritan. Who's your neighbor? Anybody. Is your neighbor. As I was thinking about this text this week, it dawned on me that this command is a lot harder than the first. You know, to love God is like, God's like, you know, when you get to know God, you're like, wow, he's beautiful. You know, he loves me unconditionally. He's pursued me. He's working all things for good. It's like easy to get on the loving God bandwagon because I know, I know a lot about him. The more I know about him, the more I love him. With people, the more I learn about them, the less I like them. 
<laughs> the temptation, especially as you get older, is to just become cynical towards people. Like, they don't change. They don't really want to listen to me. Um, what we do is this. We begin to love our friends and intentionally exclude those we don't love. And we can do that as Americans. We can choose our communities. We can choose our neighbors. And so what we like to do and what we're very tempted and what makes a lot of sense from a worldly point of view is, 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 is exclude and get rid of all the people that you find difficult to love and surround yourself with people who you like and who you find easy to love. The problem is, is this is the sin of the Jewish, Jewish establishment. This is exactly what the Pharisees did. They had this rigor of their religion, but it was really just an elaborate scheme to exclude those they didn't want. To, to not outrightly harm people, like we weren't going around stealing and murdering, but to, to grow indifferent towards the needs of those that you don't prefer. Obviously, as individuals, this is a challenge. Uh, God wants you to love not just the people you love, but to choose to love people that are not easy to love. But also, I think this is true as a church. As churches get older, as they develop traditions and programs and structures, often they become a kingdom unto themselves rather than an outpost of the kingdom of Christ. What happens is that they turn inward where they once turned outward. Because the truth is, is you don't need more people. <laughs> you really don't. You're fine. You're meeting the budget. You're run programs, you're good. This is what happens. The, the, the danger is that you turn to maintenance rather than mission. Redeemer in, his, in her youth and even in her young adulthood was known for loving her neighbors. And yet my challenge is that you guys got to be vigilant lest that focus become more about you than about those in our world, who do not have the knowledge of Christ. Those in this community and, and in Jackson who have no hope and with, are without God in this world, will this church continue to care for the lost? Will it continue to feel sympathy for the sufferings of its neighbors and for the griefs of its neighbors? Will it be a place of lament for the, for the pains that are not clean, and vacuumed, and beautiful? Will it, will it care in the future for the things that it doesn't have to care for anymore in its maturity? This is a beautiful church, but don't underestimate, y'all, how sneakily coldness sets in, how the institutions can assume the form of, of Christianity that God despises. Think of um, the story that Diane Lamb Langberg she's a Christian psychologist, tells of going to visit the Cape Coast Castle in Ghana. It's a castle on the Atlantic coast of the African nation where hundreds of thousands of Africans were stolen from their tribes and their homes, and they were held in the Cape Coast Castle, awaiting in these dungeons, awaiting the slave ships that would come and take them to the New World. Dr. Langberg tells of descending into the darkness of one of these prisons, the claustrophobia of it, this place where 200 men would be shackled and chained together for three months 
before they were shipped across the Atlantic Ocean. She says this, We stood in one of the male dungeons listening in the darkness to the whole horrific story when our guide said, to, said this, Do you know what is above this dungeon? Our heads shook. The chapel. Directly above, 200 shackled men Some of them dead, others screaming, all of them sitting in filth, set God worshipers. They sang, they read the scriptures, they prayed. And I suppose they took up an offering for those less fortunate. The slaves could hear the service. The worshipers could sometimes hear the slaves. The people in the chapel were numb to the horrific trauma and suffering beneath them. It's an extreme picture, but it's also a vivid one and a real one of what the church must not become and what she has become in the past. Where it's more about the form than it is the reality. When there is this brick wall between the world outside and the world in here, and it can go to hell for all we care. We're going to do what we do on Sundays. Don't underestimate your heart. The coldness that can set in when it, become, when it becomes about us instead of them. It's in this moment that I, it's good to, take a, take, to say to some of you who are maybe not yet convinced of the gospel, to share with you this good news that God loves you, God created the world and he loves you. Um, as human beings, we have sinned and fallen short of his glory. We, have, we are rebels, a rebel race against him. And God would have been utterly just to cast us off and to forget us. And yet what he's done is, is in love, he's come toward us sacrificially. In fact, he's become a human being. It's a message of how God loves, sacrificially. And his own son bled on a cross, bearing the sins of his people. He rose again. He sits now as their, your advocate, their advocate in heaven. And he's still calling people to turn from sin and self, to trust in the one he's provided. The most loving thing that anyone can do for you is to tell you this message because it's the only hope you have of not spending eternity alienated and separated from your maker. It's the only hope you have that the story of your life will not end in unending tragedy. Consider, if you know him, this is love. Redeemer, I love to see you big girl. I love to see you grown up like this. My challenge is don't grow old. Grow young. Be renewed in the things that really matter. The things that God's really after. Love. Love him. Delight in him. Take pleasure in him. And let that love for him Extend outside of the circle of this communion 
and let others be caught up in that love. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this church. I do pray that they would be renewed in their sense of call. I pray that as they continue to get their feet and to be well-structured and to run well, that they would also grow deeper in the things that really matter. I pray they would not miss the forest for the trees. I pray that would begin with each heart in this congregation. That each heart would love you. That each heart would love neighbor. And that that life of love would be manifest in their corporate life together. Thank you, Lord, for such a privilege. In Jesus' name, amen.